You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hi everyone, this is your host, Daniel Lee here. And I wanted to give you some background on the actual podcast. So I really like asking people what they do. And I've had jobs as a public accountant, a management consultant, and lately as a public equities investor. And in getting these roles, I had to speak to a lot of people who were already doing what I wanted to do. And it turned out that what the media and industry stereotypes say about the role is not at all accurate to what you actually do. And it was no, this was not to mention that most assumptions people set about uh, a certain individual's journey into that career field was also wrong. Um, this was because it's never as linear as people think it is. It's never as simple as you do A, then you go to B, and then you will get to do C. It's actually much more complicated than that, and that's what I realized after having spoken to over 80 different people to learn about what they did. And something I found out was that a lot of my friends had not learned this yet. Some eventually would because they have already started reaching out to people to actually learn about what they did but I also knew that many wouldn't because cold calling people really frightened them and that's completely understandable it still scares me too but I also am always extremely curious about what other people do and I love hearing about their stories so I figured maybe I can help them out with this podcast and just document what I would normally be talking about with other people. And so that's what this podcast is about. It's me finding people with career journeys that I find interesting and or they have roles that I would like to learn more about. And so I really do hope that I can add value to you in that sense as I go about selfishly using this podcast to learn more about other people and fulfill my own curiosity. So yeah, there you have it. Today's interview is with Vikram Samasundaran. Vikram was a Deloitte consultant as well as a University of Waterloo alum, and that's how I got connected with him. And he is also a Y Combinator alum as well, the famed San Francisco startup incubator. And as you may have thought, given the prestige of Y Combinator, we do focus a lot on his startup that he has started and eventually sold to later on join CPA Ontario, which is where he is right now. So we go through the contrast of what it was like being in a corporate consulting environment to actually going through the whole startup phase, the ecosystem in Y Combinator, what it's like to be one of the co-founders and the selling process as well as the transition out like what do you do after you've been in that kind of 
crazy startup environment. And so this has been super interesting in terms of getting a very unique perspective into a world that is receiving a lot of coverage in the media, but to hear it from someone who actually lived and breathed it. So I do really hope that you find a lot of value out of this one. All right. Today we're joined by Vikram Somasundaran. Did I pronounce that right? Pretty good. All right. Thank you. Uh, he, Vikram is the vice president at CPA Ontario, but hidden behind this kind of corporate uh, title, he was also uh, he's also a Y Combinator alum, and he has also started a startup called Edusite um, in his past. And so, you know, Vikram, thanks for joining me on the podcast. My and, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and to begin off with, um, before we dive into your career journey, I wanted to go through uh, what your childhood was like growing up. Yeah, so I had a very interesting and fun childhood. I grew up in India until I was thirteen. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah and uh, moved to Canada in 2001. Before that, my dad actually used to work in Venezuela. He was there for about six years. Mm. So a lot of my summers growing up, we spent in Venezuela. So a lot of traveling and then, you know, the summers there were fantastic. So it was a, there's this expression called third culture kids, mm. where, mm. you know, it's basically second generation immigrants where you don't identify with any one culture really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I would put myself in that camp growing up in India and Venezuela, seeing different parts of the world, and then moving here when I was 13. Um, and then, you know, there's obviously the usual culture shock when you um, immigrate to a new country. Mm-hmm. I never had any issues with the language, thankfully, but it was much more around other cultural elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that shaped a lot of who I am, adaptability, and um, being able to empathize with people of different cultures. That's probably one of my strongest skill sets. And I think it all came down to having that experience growing up um, in different parts of the world mm. in different cultures. Wow, that's something I learned a new term here. Third cultured immigrants. Third culture kids. So third cultured kids. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess I'd identify as that too then. I yeah. never knew what I would call myself because uh, I grew, I was born in South Korea and then I grew up been, grew up there until five and then moved to Hong Kong and I lived there right. four or five years and, and then I came to Canada after that too. So Okay. No. Yeah, and it's a very you know when I first heard the term, it resonated because yeah. you're you know not necessarily identified a hundred percent with any one culture, or yeah. any one heritage, and you pick up different pieces of your identity, and it shapes who you are. So yeah, um, I think there's obviously more and more people like that, especially in a place like Canada and in Toronto, where mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everyone's so diverse. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Yeah. And so when you were young, what kind of uh dream careers did you have when you were a kid like when you were seven eight years old you know people ask you like oh what do you want to be when you grow up Uh, what did you think about well the career that was always sort of imposed on me was the classic doctor okay so even as a third cultured kid you had that (laughs) of course being uh, (laughs) someone of indian descent that was the classic high achiever expectation was oh you you should be a doctor Uh but funnily uh well maybe not that funny but I always wanted to be a lawyer. So it was something that from when I was very young, it was just something that you watch TV shows or movies and um, the idea of being able to persuade someone and Uh uh, at the same time do something with integrity was what I thought the legal profession was growing up and in an idealized way, that's what I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, 
And so that was what I wanted to be from maybe as early as I can remember, five or six years old to uh, right up until I got into the professional world and saw what majority of lawyers, especially corporate lawyers, actually do day to day. And then I was like, maybe that's not what I want to do. <laughs> you know, you made it seem almost as if you were being a rebel by saying, oh, you know, my parents want to be a doctor, but no, nah, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, it was so rebellious. <laughs> I paved my own path. <laughs> And if if I think um, if I look if anyone looks at your LinkedIn profile, it starts out with you know University of Alabama Accounting, Deloitte Audit, Deloitte Consulting, and then into your foray into startup with Edusite. But where where did the uh, disconnect with the lawyer begin? Uh, was it during like you, even applying to Waterloo alone, you applied to straight to accounting program instead of a other kind of law school, but pre law program? Yeah. Um. I would say I would summarize my career journey so far as mostly exploring. Yeah. That's what I would say. Uh, I'm very comfortable learning new things, adapting to new environments, mm. and uh, um, a very general skill set is my you know biggest strength. Mm. Um, and so w- even though I wanted to potentially go into law school, mm. the reason I picked the accounting program was actually I picked it for the math program. Mm. And the accounting was a backup because you can't become an academic in math there's really no strong career path <laughs> so it was like hey i'll do accounting so there's a professional aspect to it mm-hmm. and a viable long-term secure career path as a backup mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then uh once you get into an accounting program and you're going through all the process of qualifying and all of those uh, elements you get sucked into that world mm-hmm. and very yep. quickly you buy into a lot of the you know very valid positives of the profession Right. Right. Which is the long term security and uh, the skill set will always be in demand. You if you're in that bend, you do pick up a lot of strategic skills, um, analytical skills. And, you know, there's a lot of wealth of positives there. Um, and when you first get in, you're sold on those positives. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I, I went all in and I was you know, joined Deloitte uh, in a co-op capacity in audit. Um, and I got a, a tremendous amount of value there. Right. Back to the skills I talked about. Um, and then at some point along that path, I realized long-term, that's not what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so there was one career aspect crossed off the list there. And <laughs> then I continued exploring another paths mm-hmm. that kind of took me to consulting, which was general. I mean, that's where a lot of people go for a broad perspective, right? So you want to be leading businesses. You want to learn a broad skill set, get exposure to a variety of industries, different types of problems. So all of those things attracted me to it. Mm-hmm. Again, explored, spent a couple of years, learned a lot, grew a lot, um, and then uh, went to start my own company. <laughs> also, again, exploring. And in that particular jump, it was mostly about solving a very personal problem I was passionate about, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was around personalizing learning. Mm-hmm. Again, went and did that for a few years. Um, learned by far the most. Mm and uh, grew a lot and we can get into some of the experiencers but at the end of the day we couldn't find a way to scale the business to where we wanted Mm -hmm. in the way we wanted and so we said let's at least find a home for the phenomenal product we built Mm -hmm. and so we found a buyer for the technology and then and then i came here to cpa ontario and part of that was again exploring my original goal in coming here was this is a uh, on the surface it sounds like a regulatory you know, um, old world organization that doesn't move fast. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of those kinds of challenges. Mm-hmm. 
but at the end of the day, it's a $100 million organization, 300 people gone through a significant amount of change and still facing a significant amount of change, especially with things like technology and the way that might affect the profession. Mm-hmm. So it's this interesting old school organization caught in this place where they're forced to adapt and change fast, otherwise they're going to die out, not just as an organization, but potentially as a profession. Right. And so that was fascinating to me. And so the reason I came here was originally to learn at a leadership level how to run an organization of that size Mm -hmm. and scale. But then as soon as I got here, I realized the tremendous scope of challenges facing the organization. And that's what's kept me here, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's just so much to do to really help um, consider what holds what, what the future holds for the profession and then start to drive forward um, in a way that actually makes sense and builds a sustainable future for the profession. So. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I think uh, it's an excellent job of summarizing <laughs> your unique career path so far. And so if we were to, I guess, now kind of dig into a little more to the details of each part, yeah. um, I think even the initial part of you, know, you did audit and then you moved into consulting and you know, it's still, even though it was within the same company, from my experience with the big four, it's never as easy as it always seems when people might think, oh yeah, of course I can go into one and uh, you can always make the transfer. But yeah. for you, it was uh, in effectively making the transfer into consulting, you joined the monitor group and um, you effectively had to give up on the whole CA, CPA path. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that you had. Uh, hedged as like, oh, I'll have that professional path and you had kind of went all in on. And so what was the decision-making process? Like, well, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of parts that could have made you think, oh, you know, maybe, maybe doubt your decision at times or you know, like considering it even from your parents' perspective, what were they <laughs> concerned with? Yeah. Um, there were a lot of, at the time, it seemed like such a world-changing decision. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, in hindsight, it really isn't. Mm-hmm. And part of that is realizing, and I think this is how uh, I've evolved over the course of time to realize that it's not, it's never, you get used to the sunk cost idea, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the thing that frustrated me most by that point in my career in audit, I'd done a few, you know, that was my third busy season, mm-hmm. even though I was still in school and as a co-op. Yeah. Um, and everyone, once you get past that point, is disenfranchised, right? So. Uh, there are a lot of people that love what they do and mm-hmm. want to get the designation and plan to be a CPA in public accounting mm-hmm. for their careers, mm-hmm. right? But there's a lot of people that don't. Mm-hmm. And there, it's a pyramid model because it's a high leverage model, right? So you take in a lot of associates and junior analysts and only a few of them advance mm-hmm. in their careers, right? Most of them will leave to other opportunities. Mm-hmm. And the thing I consistently found was all my friends who are in the same situation as me either didn't do the work to explore what they wanted to do mm-hmm. or were too stuck on, I need to stay till I earn my designation. Right. Because the designation opens up all these doors for me. Yeah. Right. And rightly or wrongly, that was the attitude. And for me, it really, the struggle was really getting to a point where I realized the doors it opens may not be the doors I want to walk in through. Yeah. Right. Um, and once I got to that point, then one, it opened up opportunities and I didn't really care about the risk of not pursuing and following through on the designation because to me that was an added bonus. Mm-hmm. Even when I switched over to the consulting side, at that point um, I was working with Deloitte to see if there was a way I could still earn my designation, mm. but that was all an added bonus. Yeah, It turned out I couldn't and I didn't particularly care, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the more important thing is that then now carries through in all my decisions, right? It's mostly about 
what actually are the consequences of making a decision and don't evaluate it based on a feeling of security or sunk cost or, you know, that that's not the right way to evaluate a decision. And it sounds like a lot of common sense, but when it comes to your career and, you know, potentially um, starving for a few months or not making a paycheck, <laughs> there's a lot of emotional baggage wrapped up in those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, you, you trade off long-term career prospects if things go right for short-term security every time, or at least I do, right? And so that's uh, that's what I learned from that process. Yeah, no, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head there. But yeah, I think it's quite common for people to, in general, like I've done this too, where you over-exaggerate the short-term yeah. and under you know, underestimate the actual potentials of what could be and what couldn't be. Yeah, and it's the same thing in, um, it's especially important early in your career. Yes. Right. Once you're later in your career and at the same time you're starting to balance family and you have other obligations, then, you know, it's very understandable your decision making comes under different constraints. Mm -hmm. But when you're in your early 20s and you really have nothing to lose, Mm -hmm. at worst, you lose certain time. Mm -hmm. But the reality is you learn a lot more. Mm -hmm. Right. From that experience, you're exposing yourself to new things. You stretch your skill set. You will learn way more than if you stick with what's comfortable. And the trade-off, again, always works out in your favor, even if in the short term you lose out on money, on job security. In the long term, the skills you build and the experience you build will always make you stand out. Mm-hmm. So in back to my example, in the worst case, I spent a year or two in consulting, didn't enjoy it. I could have always gone back down the CPA path, and I would have stood out when I reapplied to CPA-type jobs because I would have had a different kind of experience and skill set that I would bring to the table. Mm-hmm. right? And that was something I didn't appreciate back then. But in hindsight, that makes me much more valuable as a candidate when I come back to any other kind of role. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I, I definitely agree with that. And I think pre- predominantly when you're younger, there's definitely that fear of missing out mentality in career too, where I think like for me, I, I even like had feelings of it when I left audit after three busy seasons and I went to consulting. And after, even in consulting and even when I jumped into the buy side, it was more, you know, you'd see your friends and they'd be like managers at 26 and, yeah. you, you know, some of my friends, I would, I would tell them, like, I'd urge them earlier on, like, hey, man, you should leave. You know, you don't want to do this stuff. You want know, to be a software engineer. You should go be a software engineer. Yeah. And um, they were thinking, oh, but, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss out on that year. And then, like, I'm going to miss out on that title. But at the end of the day, like, you look at partners and stuff. None of the partners are, count, are counting. Oh, yeah, dude, uh, I made partner at 35. <laughs> you made it at 37. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think in the long run, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And part of that... Um, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here. No, yeah. Part of that is we're so used to, and this, this comes from my education experience, we're so used to every step of the way from when you're three years old all the way till you're 22, every step of the way someone's telling you this is a path. Yeah, yeah. This is the right next step. If you aren't advancing at this pace and following this right next step, you are a failure. The word failure is used, and it's not used in the context Silicon Valley uses it where failure is a good thing and you learn and build. It's used in the context of you are worse than your peers mm-hmm. and you are less than your peers, mm-hmm. right? And so when you've spent all your formative years in that kind of paradigm and then you're faced with a career decision where all your friends and all your peers are advancing, quote unquote, right? And you don't advance in the same way, you are a failure mm-hmm. in that paradigm of you are less than your peers. Yeah, yeah. And that's a huge level of programming that you got to unwind to be comfortable saying, it doesn't matter what my peers are doing, what my friends are doing. 
I got to make the decision that makes the most sense for me. And I got to think long term. And I got to think about skills, which is not how you're trained to think. You're trained to think in terms of grades and metrics and salary. Mm-hmm. But if you think about skills and long term career, it's a very different kind of decision making than what you're used to. And that's a it's a hard thing to do mm-hmm. after 22 years of learning certain habits. Yeah, and I think uh, as someone who's already built a startup in the education world, you're probably very educated in this manner. But I just recently learned about how uh, the current school, Western school system was developed. It's still from the same model that we had in the industrial ages where, you know, the reason why we have summers off is not because they want to give kids a break, but it was because so kids could go back to the farms and just cultivate the crops. That's the only reason we have two months off in the summer. Yep. And we still follow that model where the entire model is just built to pump out obedient factory workers. That's what we have schedules and rules. And after we get pumped out of that, it's supposed to be, okay, now you're going to be a factory worker, go to the assembly line, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and you could take it one step further. There's certain schools of thought today where majority of K-12 education the primary function in society actually turns out to be daycare. Mm. Glorified public daycare mm-hmm. because the tactical skills and work level you know, uh, experience you come out with is very little. Mm-hmm. If you come out as a 22-year-old student with no internship experience, with no real-world professional experience, you're at a significant disadvantage versus someone like a Waterloo co-op student who spends certain work terms actually building that skill set. Even though you might not have all the same technical knowledge, from a professional standpoint, you're at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And then you fast forward 10 years, both of those candidates will probably remember about the same amount of all the education <laughs> they learned over the 18 years of K-12 education. 100%. Right? And so in the long-term view, the biggest benefit of K-12 education is keeping kids engaged, keeping kids developing mentally, physically, keeping kids off the streets. Those are far more real world benefits and again i'm not saying this is necessarily my point of view but that's an extreme point of view mm-hmm. um compared to the actual educational benefits when you're 30 40 years old that you retain from those years mm-hmm. and then there's a social component too obviously learning how to socialize with each other building the social skill set which you wouldn't get if you were homeschooled for example mm-hmm. without you know the same level of socialization so mm-hmm. and this passion for education that you had like how where, where did it start getting cultivated while you're in consulting? Was it some kind of project that sparked it for you? or? Yeah, it, it wasn't so much cultivated when I was in consulting as something I always cared about. So mm. I'll go back to, you know, talking about my childhood. One of the things that, um, that really shaped me was building a sense of empathy. Mm. And so I always wanted to help people. I always wanted to, I always understood where people were coming from. And what that made me really good at was teaching. Mm. So throughout elementary school, high school, university, I taught in a whole bunch of different capacities, whether that's one-on-one helping, you know, in math class, a lot of times the teacher would just do a little bit, you know how math class used to work, they would do a 10-minute lesson, then give you work time. Right, yeah. Yeah, the do work your time. homework in class, yeah. Yeah, usually the work time was me walking around helping other kids. Oh, okay. So it was something I enjoyed doing, and um, it was just something I was passionate about, right? Uh-huh. And then what crystallized for me was... Every time I worked with someone one-on-one or in a very small group, they did far better. I could get them to be far more engaged because I could understand and empathize with what they did or didn't understand and then tailor what I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in consulting, my co-founder, he worked with me, Garris Lee. He was really intent on starting a business. Mm -hmm. So we would just on weekends brainstorm and talk about things that we were passionate about. And we went down a few different roads and like what are potential things. And then one day we just thought about 
that we stumbled upon this idea of sports analytics, mm. right? And the idea was like, okay, if you're a basketball player, back then, if you're an NBA fan, there's a system called Synergies, uh, and back then it was very new. Mm. And it was it's a camera tracking system that tracks every second when a player's on the court, how often they hold the ball, how long they're holding the ball at each spot on the court, how often they pass, to whom they pass, under what kinds of scenarios, and all of that is just pure by data uh, tracking, mm. and then the analytics get pumped out of that. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's super valuable for coaching and learning and development. Mm-hmm. And so the moment of crystallization was, what if you could do something similar for education mm. in K-12 students um, and be able to get that level of insight and understanding in an automated way mm. so that each teacher would be equipped to personalize learning the same way I enjoyed doing mm-hmm. in a one-on-one setting, mm-hmm. right? Not by any stretch of the imagination a new idea mm-hmm. or even novel at the time. There was probably 20 to 30 companies easily at that point trying to, in the long term, do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that really captivated us. Yeah. And so we said we started spending evenings and weekends looking at the market, understanding what was happening. We spoke to probably you know dozens of teachers, probably close to 100 in our spare time, just reaching out to one by one asking each teacher to meet, uh, meet us and then refer us to more teachers and just understanding what they did on a day-to-day basis um, that we didn't understand from a student experience mm-hmm. and then how they thought about personalization, what were some of the barriers, what were some of the challenges. Um, and you know, in a misguided way at the, in hindsight, what kept coming back, what it kept coming back to was technology and grading systems. Mm. And so we saw an opportunity where there just wasn't a good enough grade book. Um, you know, we would have learned later that that was just a common theme mm. uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so we started, you know, doing mock-ups and getting more and more into it. And over the course of three, four months, we just reached a point where, having seen other people do it, we just realized we couldn't keep super high-demanding full-time jobs in mm-hmm. a career like consulting, mm-hmm. where we were probably doing 70, 60, 70 hours, right, yeah. a week and do this on the side effectively. Yeah. So we just said, let's just quit. And it was back to the same decision-making model, right? Like, am I going to give up on short-term benefits? Uh, I'm going to miss out on salary. We mm-hmm. were enjoying a healthy, amazing lifestyle, right, where you make decent money in a, oh, yes. with a lot of young friends, and you can go out and party, and you have all those luxuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You trade all that off for a potential long-term benefit. And it mm-hmm. came right back down to, are we going to be better for it from a long-term career perspective at the end of it? Mm-hmm. And there was zero ways in which we wouldn't be better mm-hmm. right so for us it was a very easy decision um and so we took the leap mm-hmm. okay and at at what point was it that um, what point in the business did you feel that okay we need to actually devote 100 percent of our time into like um it, it was very early it was basically three three to four months in yeah uh, and over those three to four months, we were doing evenings and weekends with, you know, everything I kind of alluded to, right, right. talking to teachers, you know, typical consulting fashion, looking at the market, looking <laughs> at the market size, <laughs> uh, using the skills we had at the yeah. time, right? Uh, we also started going to technology meetups in Toronto, mm. which at the time weren't very good. Yeah. Um, it was still very early in terms of technology ecosystem here. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We, it's not like we met a whole bunch of amazing people, but we got to learn a whole bunch of principles around what starting a company in technology is like. Mm-hmm. And we were introduced to ideas like the lean startup and mm. you know just go test and iterate. And so we started doing those things. Um, but like I said, we just quickly reached a, an impasse where you can't do that effectively 
while doing a demanding job. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people have done it. I've seen a lot more fail at doing it. Mm-hmm. And so we just said, we're not going to take the chance. We're both fortunate enough that we could, you know, take some time and uh, afford not to get paid. I know a lot of people aren't in that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, we were, so we took the leap. Yeah, I think uh, it, it is a common theme where a lot of successful entrepreneurs, they some will move on, like even Phil Knight worked as an accountant while he was setting up Nike, but it's right. because it was out of necessity. And yeah. after you hit the point of where necessity is met, then you don't hedge, you just go all into yeah. giving it the full time. And so you and Gareth are both consultants yeah. and so you're both non-technical trying to start a technology company. Yep. Um, so how was, how was the early part of the strategy building like where you guys decided you know, to go off on your own and try to create some kind of technology company, like trying to create an MVP. Yeah. What was the roadmap for that? The, it was obviously the biggest challenge. And yeah. we knew from that beginning that that was our first priority. Okay, yeah. So over the first, let's say, three to four months, um, we spent most of our time actually trying to find the right um, CTO. Mm. And... We spent, you know, we explored everything. We went to coding boot camps. Um, you know, we looked at contractors. Mm. We actually hired someone that didn't work out. Um, but in the whole time, we were still continuing on the other path of talking to teachers and iterating on mockups. Mm-hmm. So with whatever crappy design schools we had <laughs> in PowerPoint, we were making slides yeah. that would replicate what a product could look like. Yeah. Screenshots, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's a funny story there, which... About two months in, we went to this conference, uh, education technology conference in Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. And there was something like 1,500 teachers there. Yeah. And we just went with our PowerPoint slide mockups, and we'd animated it to look like if you click, you're clicking to a next screen. Right. And so it was just a video on loop of us clicking through certain screens. Yeah. Um, and it was, in hindsight, fairly terribly designed. Yeah. But we were still able to win most innovative startup just from that because we had a little booth and we did that and we talked to a lot of teachers and got them engaged. Mm. Um, and you know, there's an element of there was a voting piece to it. So a lot of right. it was also because we just went out and talked to a lot of teachers. Yeah. Right. So we got them to vote for us. But the reality is, again, the funny story is we had nothing. We didn't have a CTO. We didn't have any kind of MVP. This was all just built from talking to teachers, understanding what they were saying, and putting translating that to some level of you know designed mock-up right yeah um so that was super encouraging for us only because it just felt like we were stumbling onto a real problem right that even with a really shitty solution people were responding to positively right yeah um and so then you know the next couple of months after that we lucked into finding our two other co-founders who were technical co-founders mm-hmm. um and so you know i think it's a combination of we spent a long time doing it and then we lucked into finding the right people Mm-hmm. And I think um, we kind of went, we bypassed this, but you know, this company that you guys got together to co-found is EduSite, and I know what the company is, but I don't think we've actually explained to the audience what yeah. uh, the company actually did. Uh, so if you were to describe the company, um, yeah. what was the purpose of it and what uh, value did it serve? Uh, like many companies, we went through many evolutions of product, but mm. at the end of the day, the goal was personalizing learning Mm -hmm. and the simplest way of putting it is we wanted to make it easy for teachers to capture data about their students within their existing workflows in the classroom Mm -hmm. so that we could then tailor insights and give them insights on how to 
personalized learning for their kids. Mm -hmm. So we started with a grade book because like I said, in the early conversations, everything came back down to really crappy grading tools. Mm -hmm. So we started there and over the course of a few months to the first couple of years, it evolved into a broader portfolio type tool where you could uh, capture any kind of data. You could capture voice notes, um, you could capture photos, videos, and it became more of a portfolio tool where grades were just another type of data, mm -hmm. right? So um, that was eventually where the product ended up. And the place where we reached a point where we realized we couldn't scale anymore was early enough where we didn't think we could effectively deploy anything sophisticated to start the automation or around the intelligence, mm -hmm. right? So our insights were more still um, giving teachers visualization so they could do their own insights. Um, and we had some creative visualization that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was really where we got to. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, so you've, you and Garrett both quit your jobs and a few months later, you know, you, you win a competition and eventually get your two CTOs and a few time, a few months after that, you get into Y Combinator. Yeah. And, you know, that is the holy grail of, I think, Excel, accelerators yeah. and incubators uh, yeah. in North America, at least. Yeah. And so you get there, you know, it's, a lot of your friends probably told you, all right, you, you made it, it's all gonna work out well. <laughs> and I remember though, you were telling me how about that period and you're saying, oh no, you're like, we had four guys and one, one bedroom apartment in San Fran and yep. practically some, some days we'd just be waking up, working, eating, working again, eating, then sleeping, and yeah. you just repeat the process over and over again. That was most days, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's that's the reality of what yeah. I think what it actually takes to actually go through that kind of process. That's right. And so a couple of things. We actually applied a few times to Y Combinator mm. before that and didn't get even an interview. Mm. Uh, and actually where we got in was not Y Combinator at the time. It was Imagine K-12. So Imagine K-12 was... Uh, an education incubator started by a Y Combinator partner, Jeff mm. Ralston uh, and Tim Brady. And it was basically exactly like Y Combinator, yeah. just focused on education. Uh -huh. And we still had the Y Combinator loose network because Jeff was a partner at Y Combinator as well. Uh -huh. uh, and it was all done under Paul Graham's blessing. So, you know, it was always an unofficial uh, affiliation with YC oh. and then a couple of years later they officially merged right. and Imagine K-12 is now the edtech vertical within Y Combinator gotcha. right so retroactively we still get all the benefits of being YC alum uh -huh. uh, or most of the benefits and so you know um, at the time we were at a point where we applied to YC a couple times and didn't get in and then we stumbled onto Imagine K-12 and it took us a couple of times to realize that wait a minute, Imagine K-12 is actually what we want yeah. because it's super focused on ed education yeah. and it'll be companies that we could learn from and you know, way more um, our speed, right? In terms of what we wanted. So mm -hmm. um, when we finally got in there, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was exactly like you described. There was like a lot of people saying, oh, congratulations, that's amazing. You, mm -hmm. This is the, you know, uh, this is success, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and one of the many lessons you learn as an entrepreneur is, Success is never what when other people tell you you've succeeded, mm -hmm. right? Because they will tell you you've succeeded many times along the way. <laughs> uh, whether that's hiring employees, whether that's getting into some kind of accelerator, whether that's raising funding, whether that's some sale, right? So uh, a lot of times, early days, it was uh, validation when you post something on social media, like we're going to Silicon Valley to spend six months, and you get you know the 
whatever number of likes and yeah. comments and it's like yes that feels so gratifying <laughs> um, quick hit of dopamine and you go all right quick yes. hit of dopamine. <laughs> but it's never real yeah because uh, it's not real success yet yeah and uh so to your question about what it was actually like <laughs> then it was once we got to silicon valley it was um I mean, to be fair, it was an extension of what we were already doing in Toronto. Right. Uh, Garris had, uh, again, was fortunate that he had bought a condo previously. And so we were all just spending time in that condo in Toronto. Yeah. And then we moved to Silicon Valley. We found an apartment that we shared. And it was actually a three-bedroom apartment. Oh, But two of the bedrooms were taken up by another Imagine K-12 founder and his sister. (laughs) Um, so they had a bedroom each, yeah. and then we shared the one bedroom, right. and I slept in the living room. So the four of us <laughs> shared one bedroom, and we bought cheap, like $25 IKEA mattresses uh-huh. uh, that were just rolled out foam. And so in the one bedroom, it was just three mattresses side by side on the floor with uh, crappy pillows, and no one spent time there except when they slept. Yeah. Uh, and then in the main floor, we'd set up like four desks, mm-hmm. and those are again $25 IKEA desks. Mm-hmm. Um, so of the 20K or whatever funding we got, um, a good portion of that went to rent. Mm-hmm. And about you know $300 probably went to furniture. <laughs> and that's it. And then and, you know some, some of it for food to sustain us for six months. Right. Yeah. It, and so you know, uh, at this point, you've still given up the lucrative salaries. Yeah. And yeah. You're, you're there with 20K of funding from, I'm imagining that was K-12, yeah. imagine, imagine K-12. And what motivated you guys to continue going at it like this because it's a, yeah. a big change of lifestyle from especially you know white collar consulting jobs but, yeah. you know getting it's an apartment not not normal like not uncommon for yeah. your friends to all have an apartment yeah um honestly it never even registered for me yeah um i never actually felt much negativity around that mm. lifestyle change mm-hmm. uh and maybe that's again going back to a uh, kind of had that kind of lifestyle growing up anyway, mm. where it was like a lot of moving. And then Waterloo, you're familiar with how the co-op system works. You're always moving. Oh, yeah. Um, Every four months? I had it down to a science. So when I moved in Waterloo, I literally usually always looked for crappy furnished apartments. Mm. Um, and I would just move myself. So I would borrow my parents' car. Everything I needed would be in you know, the backseat in the trunk. I would drive to Waterloo myself, unpack within two hours, drive back to... Where, you know, Branton, where my parents lived, mm-hmm. drop the car off and come back. Mm-hmm. So generally, I was pretty good at like living very minimally mm-hmm. and being super adaptable. Um, so for me, this was just, okay, I lived minimally and super adaptable in a nice Toronto apartment where it was furnished and I didn't own anything. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to look at, and then, well, <laughs> first when I moved to Garris's place, it was the same thing. I just lived on his couch. Mm-hmm. And then when we moved to Silicon Valley, it was just an extension of that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think all those kind of helped to... Um, reduce any of that negativity Mm -hmm. but i think what kept us motivated was again just the talking to teachers and the users Mm. and at imagine k-12 and yc the mantra is you do nothing but eat sleep talk to users write code Mm. and repeat that's it the time you spend in 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 either of those programs is that's what you're supposed to be doing all the time Mm -hmm. right everything else is a distraction Mm -hmm. and i think we did that really well Mm. (laughs) where all we did was I was either at home working on things with the team or Garris and I would be out talking to teachers while the other two guys are CTO and they were just developing mm-hmm. and writing code. Mm-hmm. Um, every once in a while, we tried to get them out to go take a break. Like maybe you guys should come to some classrooms and observe too. Right. Uh, and other things like that. But yeah. 
Yeah. That's the break, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it was just, again, the motivation was purely, you know, slow, but painful, but steady um, rise in user numbers and the feedback we got, seeing the, you know, updated product, uh, pushing new features, mm-hmm. getting feedback on the new features. Like that's uh, similar to the dopamine hit from social media, but it's tied to we're actually making progress towards what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I think that was the biggest motivation. motivation so, mm-hmm. yeah. And during this time, I think it, it wouldn't be uncommon to even have you know, moments of doubt or like fear as you're building out this company. Yeah. And for you, what, what, what instances made you feel these kind of doubts kind of hit you? And, or, or even like when would it hit you? Yeah, I think there were a couple of, um, there, were, there were a couple of key moments of doubt. Mm. One was, as with any founding team, we had our you know, arguments and conflict, mm. right? We were never at a point where we you know, didn't get along. Right. But a couple of us especially liked to argue. So yeah, I said I wanted to be a lawyer. Part right. of that was because I enjoyed mm. uh, heated discussion, right? Um, and I think there were a couple of points where the other guys weren't as comfortable and it created this dynamic and tension. Mm. And so we just talked through it and, you know, um, developed as a team and that made us stronger. Mm. But that was one, you know, early challenge. Mm. And again, a lot of founding teams will go through their version of that. As with any team, if you want to get to high performing, you need to figure out what your dynamic is and what the issues are and then work through those. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to do that. And then the other piece I would say is, um, and this, you know, if you draw a straight line through reasons why we weren't able to scale mm-hmm. and reasons why um, we had initial doubts, there was probably a lot of the same themes. So as much as we had, the questions we had initially around, is this actually going to work? Yeah. Uh, probably were a lot of the same questions at the end. And so we tried to pivot and iterate and try different models and tried a lot of things mm-hmm. to get around it that we thought would work. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw some measure of success along the way with certain paths, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it was the same questions. So I would say, even early on, we had a couple of moments of, is this actually going to work? Yeah. Um, I'll even go back to before Silicon Valley. On day one, when Garris and I quit, Yeah. we were sitting in his living room. And uh, for whatever reason, we had dived even deeper. And it's probably just the mental um, freedom of not having to focus on anything else, along with we had officially quit and it was hitting us. Mm. When we were like literally on that day, did we make a huge mistake? Mm. And uh, that was on day one. <laughs> uh, because a lot of the questions we were asking, uh, we didn't have great answers to. Mm. And I don't think you know those were the same questions at the end. But um, yeah, I think that was there was a lot of moments of doubt like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, like I'm, I'm kind of experiencing it for the first time. Yeah. Since uh, this has been about three months since I've been in, a, in, in my white collar job with the Kutchi salary. And right. I think last last week while I was going through more of uh, scheduling these podcast interviews, kind of I had like a panic attack and I was like, "What am I doing?" <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And it was even more worse because uh, uh, a recruiting firm had reached out about a VC uh, opportunity and they named the salary figure. And I was like, "Oh wow, all right." Yep. <laughs> I told them no, and then after that, I was like, "God." Really? <laughs> Am I making a big mistake? Yeah. 
and yeah, I think, uh, but I think it's been reassuring to hear more that this kind of doubt doesn't go away even yeah. until like, even the later stages as well. Yeah, and back to the same message, right? If you think about your situation, trying something entrepreneurial, meeting some entrepreneurial people, building that network mm-hmm. will ultimately make you a better VC mm-hmm. than if you were to take that job today. Yeah. And as much as VC is super hard to get into, a year from now, two years from now, there will still be VC jobs around. Yeah, definitely. So you will be stronger for it in the long term. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the uh, words of encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> and so then for you, for EduSite, you know, what, what, when did you first hit your first sale when you guys actually started generating cash flow? And what was that like, the process getting it? It was funny. We actually hit that before we went to Imagine K-12. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So we, it was also super early. We hadn't launched a product officially. Mm. And this was all because I think we had, uh, you know, three, four hundred pre signups before launch. Wow. And we were targeting September 2014 for launch with the new school year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all because we kept talking to teachers in Toronto and building that network. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I think Garris posted on some, uh, I want to say it was a um, Catholic Teachers Association group mm. on Facebook. Uh, or it might have been, oh, no, you know what? It was actually a meetup group. So Garris posted on a meetup group for teachers and um, a technology uh, a technology teacher from a private school reached out and just said, hey, I, I've seen you guys post and I like what you're doing. Let's talk. Hmm. And this was in the spring before September 2014. And we, we, had, we were nowhere close to a product that was ready. So over multiple meetings with him, with uh, faculty at the school, with the headmaster, um, we showed them what we had and we showed them where we were going and what we would have by September and they signed a pilot deal. Um, and it was like, you know, super small. It was something like a thousand bucks and they'll do it in grade nine. Mm. Um, and they'll test it out for the year. And we put in certain other parameters. If it goes well, we'll do X, Y, Z. Um, and that was so one, it was super validating, but two, it was, um, a huge, uh, win for us because they then became our biggest champion, our biggest supporter, mm. and we did everything we could to like win them over, satisfy them. Um, you know, it was the first customer, and they ultimately brought in all of our private school customers in the future in some way, shape, or form mm-hmm. because they knew everyone in Toronto, all the private schools, mm. um, and that was super lucrative for us, right? Um, all because they saw our evolution, they saw us grow as you know business people, as leaders, as product people. And we delivered whatever we said we were going to deliver, mm-hmm. right? So before we even got to Imagine K-12, before we'd launched, we actually got the sale. And wow. then we just kept executing to meet that sale and then scale the product from there. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and sorry, back to the earlier point, that was, again, validation that we were onto something, mm-hmm. right? Because, and that was super motivating. Mm-hmm. Um, without even having a product that was launched, <laughs> yeah, that's we true. were able to sell someone, right? So, yeah. yeah. But I think that it's probably, it's the result of the constant talk, actual talking and speaking yeah. to customers that I think definitely brought up that kind of result, like the right. kind of hustle that people talk about. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like some people uh, assume that, no, you have to have a good enough, clean product first before you ever even talk to the customer. Right. But yeah, and I think that's just been a testament of like the result of all the grunt work that you guys had to put in earlier on. Exactly, yeah. And so now you've, you know, you have customers at pre, pre-launch and after Imagine K-12, you start continuing to scale and you go through um, your first round of fi- financing. Yeah. And 
I believe that probably at this point you probably heard a lot of stories of or people saying, "All right, you guys made it. You did your freshman <laughs> financing. Yep. Congrats." But what was that like now? Even even while you're scaling, does it did it stop being the kind of go 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 constant mindset, or did it actually accelerate further? I would say it accelerated further. Um, so a couple of themes. One, surprisingly, we actually didn't get a lot of super. Oh, you're successful. Um, response, mm. partially because uh, it was not a venture round, mm. right? It was an angel round. It uh, Most of it came from one angel mm. who was not like a super prominent angel. Mm. I mean, back then there weren't even really that super prominent angels in Toronto mm-hmm. in 2014, early 2015. There were a few, but um, if you weren't raising money from those sources or from a venture round, it's not like we had a big announcement or like, you know, um, it was super high profile, mm. right? So. For us, that was a good thing because we avoided all that noise. Um, the double-edged sword aspect of that is then we had, you know, we weren't as high profile as a startup as um, some of the other companies in Toronto. Right. And part of that was also because we'd just come back from six months in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Where it's, again, we weren't known to people here. Before that, we were in a, you know, apartment. And then when we come back, we were able to go get workspace and all that stuff, but mm-hmm. we didn't have a high profile, right? Mm-hmm. So thankfully, we actually didn't go through that. Um, faux success phase right but regardless it was it it just put a timer Mm -hmm. right Um, we had effectively gotten a few users we'd gotten a couple of sales and we'd proven that there was some level of demand for the product Mm -hmm. and now all the closing the funding did was okay prove that it's real product market fit and we weren't even at the point where uh, we were thinking about you know, prove that this is a billion dollar company yet. This was pre, you know, it was basically a small, well, an angel round. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't even at a post seed, like, okay, we've got a model working. Mm-hmm. We were still at, we got to find product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just put a lot of pressure on us to be careful about how we spent the money, don't burn through it fast. So we built a, you know, we, we were very judicious about building a long runway. We used, we still used free space as much as we could. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't go hire a crazy number of people. Um, until we could be confident that we found product market fit. Mm-hmm. And so that was very, very, um, it was a good, high level of pressure, but it was a good level of pressure. And mm-hmm. it's the right kind of incentive to keep us going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you selected this angel investor, was it, was it a kind of you were vetting different angel investors and you picked the one that could add mo- the most value to you? Or was it just anyone that's going to give us the most amount of money? Uh, it was more the latter. Yeah. And I think that was a, a lot of function of, um, so we made one mistake, mm. which was we raised too early. Mm. Uh, and by that, I mean, um, you know, another uh, Imagine K-12 alumni who was super helpful in, to me and giving me advice in fundraising, he said, don't raise until you have leverage. Mm. It's all just a game of leverage, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have leverage, just stick it out, stick it out, stick it out until you do have leverage. Mm. And at that stage, what leverage means is you want to be the top company in your graduating class from your incubator, for example, mm-hmm. right? You want to have the sexy metrics. You want to have people chase after you. That's mm-hmm. the leverage you want to build mm-hmm. because that puts you in a strong position. And it's especially easier to do at that stage mm-hmm. because you haven't raised money. You don't have a bloated team. You don't have any real expenses. Mm-hmm. And you can stay lean, right? And the mistake we made was thinking we had leverage mm. because we were still probably... Um, 
closer to the top of the Imagine K12 batch. Yeah. And we thought the market was hotter than it was. Oh, okay. Right? Uh, so we kind of misestimated how much leverage we actually had. <laughs> Um, and the reality was we really didn't have any leverage. Uh-huh. And so it was a combination of all of those things that kind of kind of led us to, we met with a lot of VCs, we met with a lot of angels, and we weren't able to close a significant amount from a wide group of angels or even VCs, right? Mm. And so at that point when you know we were able to close this, it was like a huge win. It was like, great, we'll take it. Um, and we got to keep going back to work. And it wasn't, to be fair, that it's not like this angel was not a value add or wasn't a great investor, mm-hmm. right? It's just that um, we weren't in a, the position where we could pick our investors, yeah, right? Yeah. And so there's an element of luck. There's an element of we happened to be in the right place at the right time. The, what we were doing resonated a lot, um, and they really believed in us as a team. Mm-hmm. So all of those things played into it. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the right place, right time, now your company grows, and it gets to the point where um, you decided to sell the company because yeah. of extenuating market circumstances where yeah. you were talking about how there didn't seem to be a fit yeah. existent. And so when was the first indication that was apparent for you? Yeah, so to my earlier comment about once we raised money, then it was about going to find product market fit. Yeah, We never found product market fit. Mm. So after we raised money, we spent a year um, trying to you know, build revenue, sustainable revenue, mm-hmm. high growth, uh, and we couldn't get there. Mm. We definitely grew and we definitely had more revenue and users, all of the things were happening, mm-hmm. just not at a pace that would indicate this is a you know, a unicorn type company yeah. or a super high growth startup, Yeah. right? And so I would say maybe 10, 11 months in, we were maybe 15, 18 months, somewhere in that range mm-hmm. of runway left. Okay. Because uh, we'd really, like I said, we really stretched it out. Yeah. Um, so we still had the luxury of runway but it was, okay, we're at this point and we don't have product market fit. Mm-hmm. And we just had a lot of honest conversations and said, okay, we're gonna cut everything else we're doing mm-hmm. and we're gonna spend two to three months. All we're gonna do is understand what, why do people come to us? Mm-hmm. We're still growing, we're mm-hmm. still selling. Why are people buying our product and why are people using our product? Mm-hmm. If we don't have product market fit, what's the real value? Mm-hmm. And for a month, that's all everyone in the company did was talk to teachers, talk to a whole bunch of people, observe, um, and obviously we still track metrics in a you know, more passive way otherwise, but we were super diligent about like trying to get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And what we found was there was, our, our product was the, pro- like, the most intuitive and well-designed, mm. right? But it wasn't enough of an improvement for them to abandon any of the other products, mm. right? And so there was a lot of misaligned incentives, you know, other massive companies that have much bigger products that have gradebooks as a feature um, that people just did it because it was convenient. Right. And so we had to face a hard reality that unless we added something that would be a carrot for people to switch, we weren't gonna get there. Mm. And then, so we tried a few different carrots for the decision makers. And again, this, it does, it, it's not like we weren't trying some of these things before, but we just doubled down and put a lot more effort and changed our focus as a company. And mm-hmm. that matters a lot because it shifts, uh, it gets everyone aligned behind different goals, right? Mm. And so um, we tried a few different models and then we really um, thought there would be one model that was, okay, this is very elegant. It actually meets all the incentives. It does a lot of things. And we're hearing a lot of, again, positive high demand from people we talk to. 
at the school boards. Um, so, but then we also said we got to be realistic, mm-hmm. right? If this doesn't work, then we don't really see a path to finding that product market fit that's going to make us a rocket ship and that's going to scale us to the hundreds of millions in revenue and that kind of scale. Yeah. Uh, because this was the only model we hadn't tested yet. And so we doubled down. We spent, you know, four to six months building things, testing that out. Um, and we didn't see the results we wanted. And mm. it, we hadn't even set super ambitious goals on the results. We just wanted to accelerate sales. And we weren't seeing that. Um, and at that point, you know, again, context is we could still, at the pace we were going, at the trajectory, we could have probably raised one more round of funding. Mm. We could have probably built the company to be a five to 10 million annual revenue business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't see a path beyond that. Yeah. Right? And the question became at that scale, one, is that what we personally wanted? And two, from a business standpoint, our vision was to personalize learning. Would we be able to get there? Yeah. And at that scale, you just don't have the user base and the data to build some of the you know, machine learning and automation and algorithms that we really wanted to build. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were the two pieces that we came to realization on. And so we said, okay, we don't think we can get where we want, both from a personal or a business side. So it's time to get out of this mm-hmm. and to exit. Hmm. And I think there definitely is, um, there's a survivorship bias, I think that's overly exaggerated in the media where you see, you hear about all these founders, okay, they started a company, uh, we got bought up by yep. this giant, we got bought up by that giant, and yep. then they're like, ah, I had money, so I started a venture fund, or I started angel investing, or ah, I just put that into building another startup, and that that's like Elon Musk doing all that. But, but um, and prevalently when I talk to some of my friends, and I'm sure you might have heard from some of your friends too, in like the more professional services world, some of, them will, some of them will say, oh yeah, you know, I think maybe I'll just quit and I'll just go start a company and then sell it after five years. Right. Easier said than done. And I think, I don't think people really who sell it start out with the mentality of, I'm going to start it and then I'm going to sell it after five years. It's just more naturally like you guys were, yeah. you guys wanted to go somewhere to turn place. It didn't seem realistic and it just happened to be sold. Yeah, I think there's a couple elements there. One is in current startup culture Mm -hmm. it's not noble to start a company with the intention of selling it yeah right it's basically looked down upon and stigmatized right your uh, your goal should be to build a unicorn to build the next uber to build the next facebook Mm -hmm. and if you're not aiming for that you're not building a startup Mm -hmm. Um, paul graham from yc defines a startup as high growth Mm -hmm. and if you're not aiming for high growth with those kinds of aspirations it's not a startup And this is so built into thinking mm-hmm. um, that it's just what wins out, right? So mm. uh, I don't know if the reality is most people, if this kind of stigma or expectation didn't exist, that most people would think that way. Right. Right. Uh, another element is that's somewhat predicated on the VC model. The way most venture funds work and make high returns is they need their investments to become like an Uber mm-hmm. um, or a Facebook or a Stitch Fix or any of those companies that get to an exit like an IPO that's a 10x, 100x multiplier. Right. Not a 5x, 3x double, mm-hmm. right? So when you have all those incentives, basically if it, it's really hard to confidently and openly say, I'm gonna start a company and my goal is to sell it and align that with, I'm going to build a billion dollar company. Mm-hmm. If you say, or, and if you even set out to go, I'm going to start a company and my goal is to sell it, 
you're naturally going to have a harder time raising money. You're naturally going to think smaller. Mm-hmm. Your incentives, the way you build your company is different because the goal is to extract cash flow. Mm-hmm. Right. The goal isn't to think long term. The goal is to think five to ten years to make it an attractive buyout target. Mm. And I'm not placing value judgments on any of this, by the way. Right. Yeah. That's just the reality of how it is. Yeah. And so, if you start out willing to like looking to sell a company, you can absolutely be successful at that. Mm. But the types of industries you do, the types of cash flows you generate, will be, you know, your it fits a lot more with the classic entrepreneur hustler mentality from 20 years ago. Mm. So entrepreneur is now this sexy term. 20 years ago, entrepreneur was the guy that didn't have his shit together yeah. <laughs> and was just always trying new ideas in the hope of you know making money, right? And so like the most classic thing is the lemonade stand. You just you find a need, you go fill it, and you make some money, mm-hmm. right? So if you're looking to sell your company in five years, the best way to do that is find a niche, find a high cash flow business where you can quickly fill that niche without super high levels of investment, and milk that revenue and profitability. Mm-hmm. If you can build a profitable, high cash flow business, you can, uh, and obviously with the uh, understanding that you also think about who the buyers would be, then you could probably get there. Yeah. Right. So a lot of companies, and you know, you could potentially do something like that um, if you were three years ago in something like ad tech, mm. where there's a lot of commoditized spaces, and you just need to find the right niche and execute super hard to build your customer base and build mm-hmm. your revenue and profitability. You can't do that in something that requires a long-term vision and commitment. Right. Right. So all of that to say in a long-winded way, there's nothing wrong with looking to set out to start a company. It's just, if you're doing that, you got to be very clear about it. And the type of business you build will not be the type of business, generally speaking, that gets the high profile attention, that gets the sexy VC rounds, and you know is one of those um, companies on the hot lists to watch out for, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You will probably end up with a under the radar company that will probably be a very healthy business mm. if you do it right, but it's just a very different incentive system, and you got to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so you know now you and your team have sold Edusite, and okay, you have you received money and time back, and your co-founders and you have all split. You know, uh, Garros you mentioned is now at Harvard doing his MBA. He will be. In, he will be in the fall. Yeah soon and um, your other co-founder um, I think you said he, he started his own company yeah continued down the start, continuous uh, startup path yeah and for you you've selected to join CP Ontario but I know before that you also mentioned briefly about potentially going to venture investing yeah. yourself yeah and so what was the thought process there where you know instead of starting another company like your other co-founder were going to do an MBA which is a very common I think route that a lot of people take yeah. Um, your decision to do something different. What was that process like? Yeah, so I did a really poor job um, right after we exited mm. of taking stock of my options and mm. taking time. I just jumped in and tried things, <laughs> uh, which, I mean, in, in some ways is good, but I think uh, even then I knew it was probably the wrong thing, and in hindsight I know it's the wrong thing, only because it creates this... You don't take the time to reflect on what you've learned mm. and really take stock of what you care about. Right. I, I eventually got there, right. but I created uh, a fake pressure and you know um, timeline of myself, mostly because I was restless and I just wanted to try things. Yeah. Right. Uh, venture was one of those things. Mm. Um, and I fell into a little bit of a trap where every opportunity that came along, um, I thought, oh, I can, I could justify why I, would, I should do that. Right. Right. And venture was, um, 
it's totally a fit with my skill set and how I think and all those kinds of things in my experience. Um, I interviewed, I had a couple of offers. The reality was um, it just wasn't what I expected in a day-to-day, mm. right? Because venture is super commoditized. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be successful, you need the pipeline, mm-hmm. you need the reputation, and it's a high percentage of it is sales. Right, yeah. Um, and if you're either at the associate or analyst level, a high percentage of it is um, analysis, which is great. Uh, well, it's great from what I wanted. <laughs> Um, but in the long term, it's a high percentage of it is sales, mm-hmm. right? And whether that's marketing your firm, building the right content, you know, there's a lot of tactics that firms use to build their pipeline. Um, and the most successful ones are just great marketers and salespeople, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that realization kind of took me away from thinking of it as a long-term path. Mm. Um, to be fair, then I also, again, was fortunate enough that I could start a small fund with a couple of my friends. So you know we've made a few investments, and we're you know we have a portfolio of uh, venture investments that we've made. Mm-hmm. So I think that's my way of still being in the space and learning and staying connected and uh, building my network. Mm-hmm. And we may play around with you know different iterations of that down the line. Mm-hmm. But for now, it's uh, it's a small fund that we've made our investments with already, mm. right? Um, and so I tried that and to decide it wasn't for me. And then back to, you know, CP Ontario opportunity came up mm-hmm. um, and it made a lot of sense for, again, trade off the short term versus long term skills I learn, what benefit I get out of it. Mm-hmm. And at the time it was as simple as there's a great executive here who I met and was impressed with and wanted to learn from. Mm. It was a hundred million dollar organization, 300 people, a scale I've never helped lead. Mm. Um, I've been a consultant for companies like that or organizations like that, but I've never helped lead an organization like that. Right. And it's an organization dealing with a huge amount of change and transformation culturally and externally. So all of those things made it interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for you in terms of, um, though you said in hindsight that you might have rushed into yeah. certain things, yeah. um, do you feel then that in hindsight, if you had known what you did now, you would have just would you still have gone to CPA Ontario or do you think? Yeah. Okay. So I actually don't think if, if I'd taken time off and this opportunity came up, I don't think I would have done anything differently. Mm. Um, the difference I think is what it did was the first couple of months mm-hmm. I was, like I said, entertaining every option. Right. Right. And part of that is also like the startup culture in you, right? You test and iterate and you just go talk to people. Right. Explore. So that's what I was doing and explore. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there's just a phase in between that I missed, which is reflect. Right. And you just need to take some time off. And I didn't do that very well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think I'm ex- I experienced that early on after, after I immediately came back to Toronto after quitting my uh, job at the hedge fund and just information overload. You know, yeah. All these options hitting you. Yeah. And it can actually be a little depressing. Like yeah. Sometimes people might say, oh, poor you. You have so many options. But yeah. no, at the same time, it's very conflicting. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah, no, I can definitely, I can definitely understand that. And okay, so now you're at the CPA, and you previously mentioned how you were, you know, taking on positions as like a technological thought leader, given your background as well. Um, and yeah, like I'm, I'm personally curious on what's the, what is it like being in the inside of the CPA, where from the outside I'm seeing um, potential disruption coming to this kind of profession, where you see people who choose to go to boot camps. 
yeah. take on more technical roles in, yeah. in the engineering spaces. Um, do you feel that kind of impact? Oh, for work? sure, for yeah. sure. And you know, it's it's a reality that everyone here is aware of, mm -hmm. and we understand the potential for disruption from uh, different types of technology, whether that's blockchain, even though it's super early, or whether mm. that's automation and machine learning, which is much farther along, and mm. the applications just aren't as crystal clear yet, but mm -hmm. we know they're coming, mm -hmm. right? Um, the part of what I'm looking to do here is uh, push action. Mm. It's one thing to know that those uh, those disruptions are looming, but it's another to take some kind of action. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, the executive team here is uh, really strong and they are looking to also take action. So I'm not like a lone wolf by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the good news. The tougher part is it's a countrywide profession. Mm -hmm. So CPA Ontario is not a lone actor either. And there's a huge level of influencing with CPA in the Atlantic region mm. and with the national body mm -hmm. and with CPA in British Columbia. And each of those organizations would feel this disruption in different ways. Mm -hmm. So here we have the fortune of being in Toronto, which is a blockchain hub and an AI hub. Mm -hmm. And everywhere you go, people talk about those things. Right, yeah. And we meet people and we talk to you know leaders in um, those companies, mm -hmm. right? Who also some of them, many of them are CPAs. Right. And so for us, it's very real. Yeah. If you're in Charlottetown, and this is all super conceptual, mm -hmm. right? And nothing against Charlottetown. That's just, it's not a hub for any of these things. Yeah, just right? facts. And so uh, there's a difference in the level of urgency across the country that's mm -hmm. felt about these things. Yeah. There's a difference in the level of resources, because again, Ontario accounts for almost half the profession. Mm -hmm. So there's 200,000 odd members. Um, CPAs in the country and mm -hmm. 45,000 of them are in Ontario. Mm -hmm. So it's an outsized level of resource and exposure we have compared to some of the other provinces. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to say we can move faster, but one, it's not clear what action needs to get taken. We have some ideas and we're mm -hmm. going to test them and iterate. But two, it's not us by ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we have to bring the professional along. We have to influence everyone. We have to show them the reality. Um, and again, it's our conception of the reality, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we also can't afford to do that slowly. Yeah. Right? Um, if we take five years to respond, it's too late. Mm -hmm. And so we are, you know, we're gone through an extensive process. We're working with all the different stakeholders from the different uh, parts of the profession across the country. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're moving on that. Mm -hmm. But I think one tactical piece that I'm leading, which is uh, part of, again, what also brought me here, is thought leadership. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it sounds like a, there's a way to do thought leadership that's an empty calories phrase mm -hmm. where it's you put out some papers um, and nothing happens from there. Yeah. Um, my goal and our goal is to build the team here to be able to actually take action. Mm -hmm. So we put out a paper on cryptocurrencies a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. and the role CPAs can play in that industry and in that space. Mm -hmm. And so far, we don't have the team to build on it. Yeah. But ideally, we'd be doing more advocacy around it, more events around it. Right. We'd be working with, uh, you know, leaders in the space and a few CPAs that are leaders in the space. I've already started having conversations with them mm -hmm. to come in and one educate members, 
to then start to figure out how is the profession going to evolve? And as a result of that, what are the things we need to be doing to advocate? Mm-hmm. Whether that's with government, whether that's with um, you know employers, whether that's with students, and start taking action. Mm-hmm. So in the long term, the idea is that thought leadership becomes a beachhead where you start exploring these emerging issues mm-hmm. and then filtering that into how you run the profession, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we're not there yet, but it's the first step. Yeah, definitely. And so then for you, is a, a potential another startup in the running in your future, do you think? Or do, are you kind of all juiced out from that? No, I, I, I'm never, I don't think juiced out is uh, the right phrase. For me, I think it's always been about the problem. Yeah. Um, I've never felt super um, confined to the definition of an entrepreneur. You know, my goal isn't, or never was, to start a company. Mm-hmm. My goal was just to do interesting work and solve interesting problems. Mm-hmm. And so when we started Edusite, it just happened that we stumbled into something where I was super passionate about it, and we found a real problem that felt like wasn't being solved right, and we could see a way to solve it that would be different and mm-hmm. could add value. Mm-hmm. Um, we did do all those things. We just couldn't find a way to scale that. Mm. Um, and ultimately, the value passed on to Nelson, who bought our product mm-hmm. and our technology. Um, I don't feel now I'm super wrapped up in this current problem, which is how do you sort of guide this profession mm. of accounting and finance in Canada into the future that's super uncertain? Right. Um, regardless of anyone's best efforts, there may be a world where it is not as prosperous as it is today. Right. Or there may be a world where everyone becomes much more sophisticated because the value of judgment is much higher in a future world. Mm-hmm. And we're able to actually build in a lot more judgment um, in this profession. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, 20 years from now, maybe the stereotype of an accountant isn't the boring number cruncher, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so that's a whole spectrum of potential outcomes. And I don't know where we land, mm. but right now I'm enjoying trying to figure out that out mm-hmm. and to move towards solving that problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, I'll, I'll say, if I ever become an entrepreneur again, it would be that there's a problem that fascinates me, and I don't see a way to solve it aside from starting a company, mm. and that would be what motivates me to start a company. Oh, yeah, definitely. And as we kind of as we get close to the end of this uh, interview. Um, if your 20-year-old self will look at you now, so you know, the Vikram of third year Waterloo, I'd say, <laughs> um, saw where you are now and what yeah. you've done, what do you think the emotional reaction would be? Uh, that's a great question. I would say probably ambivalence. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds negative. It's not really negative. I don't <laughs> think it's because, it's because I've just taken a path I would have never foreseen. Right. Right. I think it's, um, I would be pretty happy with where I am. Mm. Uh, and I actually asked myself a different version of that question. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But for 30 year, 20 year old me, I would be pretty happy with where I am, but I just wouldn't have expected it. Yeah. Because at that point, I think I still believed I would do a couple of years of consulting. Um, actually, at that point, it was before consulting. So I might have still believed I would get my CPA and then who knows what. Right. Um, so it would have been completely foreign to me. Yeah. Um, but I would still be happy. The question I ask myself usually is, what would 15-year-old me that had a part-time job at McDonald's, and you know, I still remember distinctly a conversation with one of my coworkers that was talking about their sister, 
who was a CPA huh. and was making like 70k a year. Yeah. And to me that was, oh man, that is so amazing. Yeah. To me that was success. And yeah. not that that's not success, right. but for 15-year-old me, if I was 30 and in that position, I would have been incredibly happy. Right. Right? And that would have been uh, success beyond what I expected. Right. So the reason I ask myself that and remind myself that is that I'm super fortunate to be where I am. Right, yeah. Right? And um, even though, you know, I've, again, been fortunate to earn more than that and to have been through an experience where I built a company and do all those things, that's way more than I would have expected a 15-year-old me, right? Yeah. So it's a way of kind of staying grounded as, um, and also staying hungry mm-hmm. because you never know, you can't attach metrics and numbers to how you define your success. Mm-hmm. It's just you do the best you can at whatever opportunity you're pursuing and you give it your all Mm -hmm. and then you let your path define it. Mm -hmm. Um, And as long as you can look yourself in the mirror at the end of it and say you did what was right and you did the best, then that's success. Mm -hmm. And so for me, asking that question and thinking back to that conversation is always, um, it it always also brings a sense of gratefulness Mm. for where I am. That's that's amazing. And so if you you could give advice to that 20-year-old self, yeah. Um, given what you know now, yeah. Um, or it could be that twenty-year-old self's best friend who might yeah. need this advice. What advice uh, would you give? I would say it's uh, a similar theme to what we've talked about, mm. but a slight different variation, which is don't judge yourself based on what other people are doing. Mm. Right. Um, again. Fortunately, I think I learned that lesson and I started thinking about what I wanted. But it's a really, really, really hard thing to do a lot of reflection, to dig super deep Mm -hmm. and separate out what you want from what other people want or what you've been kind of programmed to think you want. Right. And the simplest first step is just don't compare yourself to others. Mm -hmm. You just compare yourself to your own growth Whatever goal you set for yourself, are you able to achieve that? Are you able to be better than you were six months ago, a year ago, in whatever facet you want to measure? Mm-hmm. And that's how you grow, and that's how you achieve success. And so that's a super hard thing to do, and it's a lesson many people don't learn. I still have to remind myself all the time, but to me, that's the biggest piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's excellent. All right. Thank you so much for coming on this interview, and I think our audience would really find a lot of insight out of our chat today. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way. And included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.